Welcome to the Botstaber Austrian American Podcast. When the children's homes then became a children's community for them, as with the others, they all enjoyed it tremendously. The children's community was the only possible way to handle this kind of children. Our guest today is Lily Maya, a historian and journalist who is also currently a PhD candidate in history at the University of Munich. Her latest book is a biography of Ernst Papenick, Auf Wiedersehen Kinder. Lily, thank you so much for being here today. I've been really looking forward to talking with you. Thank you for having me. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm sure. So, as you just said, I am a historian and a journalist, so I have a background in history. Right now, I'm getting my PhD in Jewish history. Um, but I also got a, a master's degree in journalism, and I've been writing for almost all my life. Um, and in the last couple of years, I published two books. At the University of Munich, you received a research prize for your thesis on the long-term after effects of the kinder transport. Can you talk a little bit about this work? Sure. Um, so this was actually my, my undergrad thesis, and I interviewed um, 15 Holocaust survivors who were rescued on a kinder transport, um, mm -hmm. either to England or to France, and who then later came to the United States. Um, so the long-term after effects that I looked at were for people who lived uh, most of their adult life in the United States. And it was some really fascinating findings in different fields. So on the one hand, these people became really successful professionally, um, of all the 15,000 uh, kindertransport children that we know, um, four won a Nobel Prize, for example. And many of them went into uh, similar fields like, uh, like medicine um, or engineering. And then also, if you look, at, I also looked at questions about do they talk about their past? Um, how do they tell their children about what happened to them. Um, and here you can find more differences between, for example, who went to France and who went to England. And um, so this was just kind of getting me started on the whole the whole research into the kinder transport. And, and so given this, what in particular motivated you to research and write about Ernst Papenek? Was he part of this research? So he was not part of this initial research, um, but Ernst Papenek, as we will talk about, was involved in the French kinder transport, and uh, he was very important there. So a couple of people that I interviewed for the thesis were rescued by Ernst Papenek, and one of them is named Arthur Kern, and I have known him actually most of my life. I've met him when I was 11. Um, he's a Holocaust survivor that grew up in the same apartment in Vienna that I grew up in as a child. And so he was actually my first, my first person I ever met who was on a kinder transport and where I first heard the word kinder transport and also where I first heard the name Ernst Papanek. And over the years through him, I met a lot of other survivors who were rescued by Ernst Papanek and everybody kind of started getting these misty eyes and getting all excited and emotional um, talking about Ernst Papanek. And so that's how I got interested in him. 
So was Arthur Kern uh, one of Ernst Papanek's children that he helped? Yes. Um, so Papanek, he was a pedagogue and a teacher, and he was uh, the director of children's homes in France for rescue. Um, he was a director of children's homes um, for Jewish refugee children that came on a kinder transport to France. And um, this is about 400 children that he took care of, and Arthur was one of the children. That's an amazing connection. So now you've written the first biography of Ernst Papanek, is that correct? So I would say it's the first published uh, biography. Okay. There is a doctoral thesis um, that was never published. But yes, I, you could say that I wrote the, yeah, the first published memoir of Ernst Papanek, or biography. You've told us a little bit about Papanek, who he was. He grew up in Austria, yes, mm -hmm. but he had to flee in 1934. Can you tell us a little bit about what was happening during that time? Uh, for, for those listeners who might not know, why did he have to flee? What was his involvement? Sure. Um, and if it's okay with you, I would start a little earlier and just sure. talk a little bit about his background. I'm sure. So Ernst Papanek was born in the year 1900. So it's always easy to remember how old he is. And he was born into a, a like a poor or middle-class Jewish family. Um, but during his teen years already, he um, stopped identifying as a Jew and he became a member of the Socialist Party or the Social Democratic Party. And this happened mainly because of World War I and his disappointment uh, in the monarchy. And so this interwar period between World War One and World War Two um, in Vienna where Ernst Papanek was a young man. And um, this is a very important and very interesting time and we call it the Bad Vienna because Austria is governed by the Social Democrats, whereas most of the rest of the country is Christian conservative. Um, and so in this Bad Vienna, um, it's really amazing to look at how many reforms they enacted. They built so much public housing they almost reduced infant fertility. They did a lot of um, education reforms and social reforms. And so this is the time that Ernst Papanek kind of grew into politics. And at a very young age, he got very involved. And for him, you could never kind of separate pedagogy and being a teacher and politics. And um, so at the same time, as he became more and more involved in Austrian politics, he also um, got training to be a teacher, and then he worked with, today you would say, youth at risk, probably. And he was also giving a lot of speeches and being involved in reshaping the education philosophy of the time. And in German, we call this the Wiener Schulreform, the Viennese school reform. Although in America, you mostly call it the Austrian school reform. And so this Austrian school reform is also very important at the time, and they kind of stop adhering to these strict rules from the monarchy and they open the classrooms and um, it becomes much more democratic and uh, more child-centered. And so he is very involved in this. And then in 1932, he gets elected into the Viennese city council. And he's also the, um, you could say, the president of the Austrian Socialist Youth. And he will become the last president that they ever had before the end of Austria you could say, in this, what did the dictatorships have? And this now leads us to your question and to the year of 1934. So the situation in Austria had become much more 
violent over the years. And there was a lot of tension between the social democrats on the one hand and the Christian conservatives. And the Christian conservatives in their ideas were getting a lot and lot closer to Mussolini, you could say. So not Hitler fascist, but like Italian fascism, you could say. And so this leads to the February civil war, you could say. So some people would say it's not a civil war because it was only like a week long. Okay. But a lot of people did die. And the result of it is that the Christian conservatives win and the social democrats have to flee the country. And so Ernst Papanek is important enough that there is a death sentence against him and that he has to immediately leave the country. Oh my. Yes. It's it's very chaotic and very very difficult. And so he and uh, most of the party leadership initially flee to Czechoslovakia. And just as you said, for the read, uh, for the listeners who don't know this, so this period in Austria then is called the Austrofascism. And for the next four years, there is a, you could say a dictatorship of the Christian conservatives. And it's called Austrofascism. It's it's more, like I said, it's closer to the Italian fascism. So it's not anti-Semitic, but it is a dictatorship and fascism. Um, and this is uh, also the reason why when the Nazis come in 38, the opposition, there isn't really an opposition because the opposition already fled four years ago. Ah. Um, so this explains a lot of that. And so now the Papanek and the Austrian Socialist Party, as well as large groups of the German socialists who had to flee them from Hitler, and uh, they are all in Czechoslovakia, in the German-speaking parts of Czechoslovakia. And that's where um, Papanek goes to in '34. So he's still in exile when the World War II breaks out, and he's with his family at that point, or is he not? I think he, he had quite an adventurous period there, I think. Yes, adventurous is really the way to put it <laughs> so these these first four years of exile his family stays in vienna on the one hand uh, everybody believed that this was going to be a very short period that the politicians would be able to return home and so no one wanted to uproot the family hmm. but also his wife lena and um, she was a doctor and she was uh, earning the money for the family and she was also sending money to exile to her husband so she was at home looking after the two young boys and earning all the money while her husband was kind of having the time of his life during exile. <sighs> and I mean, there were some really um, scary situations as well, but it was really adventurous and he got a lot of recognition for it. So he went to the Spanish Civil War for a while and he did some anti-Nazi work in Danzig, which is now Poland. He was traveling a lot, but he also, again kept to his roots and started an international journal on pedagogics and on um, new trends in education. And he was all over the place. And what I find personally very interesting is that it's not like the family never saw him. So every Christmas and every summer break, the whole family would go to whichever country he was staying at at the moment, mm. and they spent a vacation together. <laughs> which is really not something, uh, something you would think of when you consider exile. Yes. So then uh, we come to 38 and uh, the annexation or the so-called annexation of Austria by the Nazis. And at this point, it's important to say that while Papanek and his wife 
would never have identified as Jewish because they were socialists. In the eyes of the Nazis, they very much were Jewish. Especially his wife, she came from a very wealthy and well-known Jewish family. Um, her father had a hospital in Vienna, and she was also working at this hospital. So she was really well-known to be from a Jewish family. And also Ernst Papanek, as I said, was born into a Jewish family. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they're not communists, they're socialists, but they still were in this whole idea that there's no religion, there's only like politics. Hmm. And they they raised their children to be atheists and they celebrated May May Day with them instead of like a religious holiday. I see. And none of their children had a bar mitzvah or even had a, a bris or any Jewish ritual. But of course the Nazis um, considered them Jewish, so now the family has to flee as well. So in 38, the wife Lena, she packs up the children and she joins her husband in Paris. And this is before World War II breaks out. So already in 38, they are in Paris. They are planning to emigrate together to America. And so what happens? How does he become involved with the Jewish refugee children there? Um, so like I said, we are in the year 38 in Paris. It's the fall of 38. And they have their visa, uh, they have their ship tickets, everything is ready for emigration to America. And then Ernst Papanek is contacted by a Jewish organization. It's called OSE, O-S-E, OSE. Mm-hmm. It's originally a Russian Jewish organization that at the time had about 30, I think, organizations in 30 different countries. So this is the French version. And they were running a sort of day camp for Jewish refugee children. And they offered Ernst Papanek a job as the director of this day camp. Um, His wife is very much against it. She wants to save the family and to get out of Europe. But Ernst Papanek says they don't have any money. How about he takes the job for six months? And then they have money and can still emigrate. And so this is really the very benign reason how he initially comes to the state camp. Okay. And then you can kind of say that that he's caught up in history. Because then, as I said, we were in uh, the fall of 38. And as you surely know, um, then we have the, the November pogroms or Kristallnacht. Uh-huh. And Kristallnacht completely changes everything. So now the organization, the USA and Ernst Papanek, they don't want to help a couple of refugee children who are already in France. They want to get children into France out of Nazi Germany. And now it becomes a whole different um, kind of situation. And initially they kind of smuggle children out with a very simple way, actually. So a French woman who had children went to Vienna or to Berlin, and they gave her children the same age as her own children. And she just took them over the border and told them not to speak. Because at the time, it just said in the passport of the mother, uh, the age of the child and the gender of the child. So it was (sighs) actually quite easy in this way. But of course, you could only get one or two children at a time. And so then the USA and also other organizations in France uh, get involved in organizing a kinder transport and getting a larger number of children into Oh my gosh, what a story. Yeah. So so were there a number of women involved in this way who were who had children and would use their passports to bring children back? From the way I understand it, yes. 
there isn't so much information about this period because maybe it was altogether a couple dozen children. So the kinder transport as an organized and legal way was a much better way to get children into the country. So the kinder transport or children's transport is one of the largest uh, rescue operations during the Shoah. And the basic idea is that uh, children could be rescued when the parents were willing to separate from the, res uh, from the children. So the Nazis allowed these children to leave. But uh, most of the countries uh, taking in refugees, they did not want any danger to their job markets. So they would say, yes, we will accept children, but we will not accept the parents. Oh. Um, so this only worked if the, ch the parents sent the child um, away by themselves. And for the people who have heard of the kinder transport, uh, usually it refers to the British kinder transport, because this is 10,000 children. And it's by far the largest kinder transport. And in England, most of the children were um, housed in foster families. Um, but there's actually a lot more, uh, lot more children and a lot more kinder transports. So altogether, we're talking about um, 15,000 children. And the others went to, um, to Sweden and to Switzerland and Belgium and France and the United States and Palestine. And so this French kinder transport um, is much, much smaller than the British one. It's only about 250 children. Um, but there are two differences. The one is that they're actually getting immigration visa. In England, this was all, only meant as a temporary solution. So the children were given transit visa. And the second difference is that in France, they are put in children's homes um, and not with families. And also maybe to mention, in all the kinder transports, the children were between 2 and 15 years old. So some of these children really were babies, which uh, is often kind of overlooked when we see pictures of these kind of like teenagers. But yeah. they were like 2 or 3 year olds. So about 250 children come to France. Mm -hmm. So as I said, uh, in France, the idea from the beginning was collective housing in children's mm -hmm. homes. And there's mainly two organizations that take in children, um, DOC and the Rothschilds, so the, the famous banking family. Mm. Uh, but DOC takes most of the older children, and then they also start taking in children from refugees that can't look after their own kids. So they take, they help refugee families that come to France by themselves by taking care of their children. And as I described before, they also smuggle children in. So mm -hmm. at some point in 38, 39, Ernst Papanek is looking after 400 children okay. in four different children's homes. They're all close to each other um, on the outskirts of Paris. And there, you could say, there, so there's four homes. There's um, one for the the tiny children, so it's called La Petite Colonie, um, the little colony, it's for the preschool children. Then there's two for the regular older children, and then there's one specifically for Orthodox Jewish children. These children were traumatized, and many of them hadn't had a formal education in years. What was Papanek's approach? Yes, and um, so Really, from the beginning, Ernst Papanek did not just uh, consider this as looking after children and making sure that they are fed. He saw this as a huge task, and his 
he said his most important goal was to make the children happy again and mm. to make them feel like children. And he, you could say he was in a perfect, the perfect man for the job because with his um, background in this kind of modern social democratic reform pedagogy, but also he also had a background in, in psychotherapy. Um, and then his wife, Lena, um, after her initial um, refusal to stay mm. in France, she also became involved. She was the doctor of the children's homes. And many of the teachers and educators were also um, political um, refugees. And he now really creates this incredibly um, intensive educational system, where on the one hand, as you mentioned, a lot of these children did not have formal schooling for years. So a Jewish child in Germany had not had regular school classes for four years, and in Austria for about one year. So he has to get to um, get the children used to school again. So he does this by opening up the classroom. They teach a lot of classes outside. If the weather is nice, they just take their tables and put them in the park. Mm -hmm. um, they go on a lot of field trips. They do a lot, a lot of like large discussion groups where the children don't even recognize that they're learning. They're just talking about um, everyday events and um Every time there is like a connection to something like physical or mathematical, he explains this to them. So this is a way of getting the children used to school again. Mm. He starts an incredibly large and intensive school government, you could say, or co-government of the children. So there's like a parliament and there is um, a court <laughs> and there is like class speakers and school speakers and for every age group there is like a committee there's a sports committee there's a committee for everything <laughs> and so on the one hand he does this to teach the children democracy after living in a dictatorship for so long and hmm. um, on, on the other hand he does this uh, to give them back control over their own lives by having them make decisions that involve their own lives um, although he's very uh, strict and very adamant to say that this is not a self-government, which there were some projects at the same time about self-government. So this was a co-government. And so the children at all times knew that there are responsible adults taking care of them. It was not all left to them. Hmm. There was also a connection to ORT. Um, this is a, a, a Jewish organization that trained Jews in trades um, so that wherever they would end up, they had like a, a trade that they could work in where you didn't need language skills. So all the children learned the trade, mostly um, shoemaking or carpentry or dressmaking. Okay. And then he was, as you said, working with all these traumatized children. And he was... For him, it was clear that the children had to confront their trauma, that they could not become happy or like psychologically stable adults if they did not confront their trauma and if they did not confront what was happening to their parents. So he kind of organized therapy for the children, like game therapy or group therapy. And um, again, the children didn't really recognize what was happening. They were not told what was happening, but he in large forms, um, had therapy for them. And this is very unique and very modern at the time. So 
at the time, people believed that if a child survives a trauma, it doesn't really matter because it's too young and it cannot remember. Hmm. And this this is the opinion until the 80s. And so he was like really 50 years early with this opinion here. And so this was very important for him. And then lastly, as I said in the beginning, it was very important for him to treat the children as children and to make them happy. And he thought a good way to do this is to um, put up a lot of celebrations. Hmm. So really every holiday, every Jewish or French holiday, um, every birthday was met with a huge celebration. There were circuses and there were there was games and candy and singing. So this was a lot of like parties, you could say, um, so that the children felt like they were be- they were children again. And actually, there are some interesting letters where people criticize him for this, and they say like this is a children's home. This is not like a an operetta or something. <laughs> And he gets really angry, and he almost never gets angry. But here he says, these are children, and they have to be treated like children, and they deserve to be happy. And then one more thing I can mention, which comes from his uh, political background, is that the children called him by his first name, so they called him Ernst, which was also a, a big surprise for these children, because um, they came from these kind of like strict German backgrounds. Why, why did he want them to do that? So this is a social democratic thing. So even his own children did not call him Papa or Dad. They called him Ernst. So this kind of like that you're on the same level. And I don't know how to say this in English. So they also, they were dudes. They, they haben sich geduzt. Uh, so they were using informal language. Mm. And they were not using formal language to address each okay. other. Which, of course, you don't have in English. Yeah. And so this kind of went on kind of happily until war started in September 39. But then it still took until the spring of 1940 until the Germans actually attacked France. So there was now, there was rationing and there were like air raid alarms, but it still kind of went on the same way until the spring of 1940. What happened then? In May 1940, the Germans realized or decided that there's no way they're going to attack French uh, France through the German-French border, because it's too well protected. So instead, they attack um, the Netherlands and Belgium and Luxembourg, and neutral countries that don't really put up much of a defense. And mm. in a short period of time, they, they run through these countries, and then they're able to attack France from the north, from the unprotected side. Um, and very quickly progressed through France, and by June are already um, close to Paris. And then really kind of last minute, the USA is given permission to evacuate the children's homes. This is really quite shocking when you look at it. So the children are in the three kinds of dangers from the Nazis, because they are children, and they are German, and they're also Jewish. Mm-hmm. So Clearly, they should have been evacuated much earlier. But the French government was trying to hide that they were losing the war. And there was a lot of propaganda and the newspapers were not allowed to write that they're losing the war. So they were afraid that if they start evacuating children's homes, people will realize that it's bad. Uh. Yeah, which is really so political and so crazy. And so it's only... um, eight days before the Germans reached Paris that they were able to evacuate the children to the south of France. 
Oh my goodness. Which then soon becomes called Vichy France or the unoccupied France. And Mpapanek is with them at that point. So he is with, yes, so he's with them um, when they go to the south and he finds um, an empty castle um, to open a new children's home for them. But then after only a couple of days, um, he is forced to leave. And this is because the kind of the peace treaty between the three friends and the Germans, um, as part of this, the French uh, agree to hand over political enemies of the Nazis. And so Papanek is considered a political enemy mm-hmm. and he is warned um, and they were afraid that if he stays there, he will endanger the children. So he has to leave the children. And this, of course, is really hard for the children because they don't understand the politics behind it. And there are some terrible letters in his papers um, from people who, after the war, really attack him for the, um, for leaving the children. Oh. But he was, in his mind, he was sure that he was endangering the children. And he then gets to America and immediately, start, immediately starts to trying to get the children to America and to save the children to America. He has a very exciting escape to get to the U.S. with his family. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So first of all, I did mention before that the family had a visa to go to America. Yes. But they renewed it a couple of times, but at the end they had to give it up because they they decided to stay with the children in the children's homes. And so at this time he does not have a visa and he... He gets to to Limoges first and then to Montauban, which is where the Austrian politicians kind of assemble. And at first, it's not clear how he will be able to get out. And then he's given um, an emergency visa by President Roosevelt. And these emergency visas are really very rare. So it's a uh, a great chance for him. So a little bit of background here is that Eleanor Roosevelt, so the first lady, as well as Thomas Mann and um, a couple of um, politicians who had already managed to flee to the United States, they created the Emergency Rescue Committee. And they got uh, President Roosevelt to start this emergency visa program for intellectuals and for uh, politicians who were enemies of the Nazis. And the way it worked is that this was outside the quota system. So it was done outside of the State Department. Basically, they were given tourist visa. And then once they entered the country, President Roosevelt like, personally changed it to, um, to give them like an immigrant visa in a way. And so this is the idea behind it. And so now a number of uh, NGOs or like of organizations were given um, these visa. And so, for example, this was the American Federation of Labor or the Jewish Labor Committees or left-leaning organizations. Mm-hmm. And so this is how Papanek gets on the list. And just to give you a perspective, so about 3,000 people are nominated and only about 1,000 actually get um, a visa. And of those 1,000 only about 400 actually managed to get out of France oh. and uh, to go on the trip. So it does show you that um, Papanek was considered important, mm-hmm. but it does also show you his, his luck. Yes. And so then he is one of the first families that the French resistance smuggles uh, through the Pyrenees. 
this is a later famous route because a lot of famous intellectuals take it, like uh, Leon Feuchtwanger or Heinrich Mann. So at least in Germany, it's quite famous, this trip over the Pyrenees. Um, and th so then through Spain, um, he gets to Portugal and from there on a ship to America. And so then he reaches New York in September of 1940. What were his experiences once he's in the United States? So Papanek immediately starts working on saving the children. So actually very uh, cliche like he uh, works as a dishwasher mm. to make some money. And he works as a dishwasher at night. And during the day, he tries to get to know people who can help him. And although he speaks almost no English and he's a very good networker <laughs> and so soon after he also actually personally meets Eleanor Roosevelt and he kind of gets into the right circles um, and he finds the people that are actually working on an American killer transport and this is a huge operation there is a dozen NGOs involved in this so this is a committee founded by Eleanor Roosevelt and it's the Quakers and it's the YMCA and the Unitarians so this is a huge organization and Papanek manages to get a lot of his children onto their radar. And so this kind of American kinder transport, which manages to save about 250 to 300 children um, on five transports and about 250 of them are Papanek's children. I think uh, the correct number is 283 actually um, are Papanek's children. And I, I just want to clarify, they end up coming to the United States? Yes. You would have to write a whole book about this period alone. So it's really, it's a huge organizational effort with organizations in Europe and in America working on it. And you have to remember, of course, that it's war going on and that there are, the Germans are bombing ships and everything. And so mm. through all this chaos, they do manage actually legally to get, like I said, about 300 uh, children to America. Um, and about uh, 283 um, of those are Papanek children. And I'm just struck by something. So he's working as a dishwasher yes. at night while he's meeting with people like Eleanor Roosevelt during the day. Yes. Um, so you can really see where his priorities lay. I mean, even though he's barely speaks English, he would have been able to find a better job than washing dishes. Mm -hmm. But his priority was not making money or making money for his family. His priority mm -hmm. was saving the children. Mm -hmm. His wife at the time works as a nurse and then gets accredited as a doctor to work as a doctor again. Oh, so she much quicker does the ordinary immigration route of building up her life. But he, for the first year, is really focused on getting the children out. And here, I think it's important to mention two things. So the one thing is that they do manage to rescue so many of those children. And I read thousands and thousands of documents and all these NGOs. I mean, you could basically say they hated each other. Oh. There's so much infighting going on. And there's so much discussion about how expensive this is. And couldn't the money be used better to just feed children in France instead of trying to get oh. children out? And um, so there's a lot of lack of understanding on part of the not Jewish organizations how bad the situation is. 
And if you read this, really, you th- you sometimes wonder how they managed to save a single child. <laughs> but they managed to save, like I said, about 300. But the second point I want to mention is that when the children come to America, they are taken away from Ernst Papanek. Oh. So Papanek maybe possibly naively believed that he would be able to just open a children's home again and take care of the children. And the American social system at the time was totally against children's homes. So these um, institutions, they were only meant for the poor teenagers, mostly who were like runaways or who had been like sentenced by a youth court. They were not meant for regular children. Um, So this was a time where they were closing down a lot of orphanages and they tried to get all the children into foster families. And so this, there's a German-born social worker called Lotte Marcuse, and she is responsible for finding homes for these refugee children. And so she follows the American idea and she finds foster homes for them. And of course, for the children, this is such a shock because the children had somehow managed to survive the separation from their parents by finding such a loving and caring environment with Ernst Papanek and also by finding the friendship and the companionship of the other children, Mm. of children who were going through the same ordeal. And now they were taken apart and this was not only the only thing she did. So Lotte Marcuse sent them all over the country and she forbade them contacting each other and she um, forbade Papanek from contacting the children. Why? So this is so hard to read when you read the papers. And so her idea or the idea at the time was that in order to quickly assimilate and become Americans, children have to break with their past. And a clean break is the best. So she did not want them to write to their old friends. And she actually preferred them not writing to their parents. If the parents at the time, I mean, if they were still alive, they were often in ghettos or in concentration camps. And so she did not want the children to write to the parents in order to quickly assimilate. And this was everything uh, that Papanek opposed. It was the complete opposite of his ideals. And so now you can really see how much ahead he was of his time and how quickly, uh, how you can see how lucky he had been in France to find an organization that believed in his ideals mm-hmm. and was completely looking at Papanek always was looking into working with the trauma and helping the children. And she wanted this complete break. Um, and I, I mean, to give a bit of a spoiler, she did not succeed. So, and once the children became adults, they all started looking for each other and they all found each other again and they all found Papanek. But she really tried everything to break them up. She actually, there's like some internal documents where you can see that a lot of Marcuse uses money, um, which was always lacking, to send Papanek out of New York. So Papanek mm-hmm. is not in New York when the children arrive. So she really does everything to try to um, stay uh, to get him to stay away. I wonder if it would be helpful to talk about what the ongoing beliefs were and how Papanek was so different in his approach. Yeah. So on the one hand, it's a cultural difference. So in like Germany or in Austria or even in France, um, Mm -hmm. the children's home was not considered something bad, whereas in the Anglo-Saxon countries, uh, it was more so. And especially in America, they really considered an institution is for 
for lost causes. It's not for regular children. And the family is the best that a child can have. And you can also see here, which is why so few children came on a kinder transport to America. I mean, until the end of the war, it's only about a thousand unaccompanied minors that reach America. Um, and if you compare the size, I mean, 10,000, for example, come to England. And in England, they also, in the majority, looked at foster homes, but they allowed Christian families to take in Jewish children. And in America, a child had to be in his own religion, which made it even harder hmm. to find foster families. So actually having um, a children's home for these children in New York would have been would have made life for everyone easier. So you can see how very much um, the social work field is against home, uh, children's homes at the time if they go through all this trouble of finding foster families. And I mean, like I said, Papanik really was decades ahead of his time. So for example, in the 1960s, you still had like restitution cases where German um, where courts ruled that a child who was in a concentration camp did not merit restitution because it cannot remember uh, what happened. So this really was the official belief at the time, also in like psychological fields. And it really was until the 80s that this changed. Um, and of course, from today's perspective, this sounds so crazy because today we really know uh, that a trauma in childhood has so much more effect on an adult than a trauma as an adult. Sure. Yeah. So this really um, was the kind of the surroundings. And in retrospect, Papanek realized he should have just opened a boarding school because a boarding school was accepted and you still would have had the children 10 months a year. Oh. But he didn't really speak English and he didn't know the, the circumstances and he was actually quite quite taken by shock with the resistance he experienced from the field of social work in America. He had seemingly been so welcomed with everything he did and everywhere he went. Yes. And actually, for me, I mean, I spent so much time researching Ernst Papanek, and for me, this actually is then the, the most impressive personal accomplishment of his, where he's really at this point in his life where it looks like he lost. I mean, mm -hmm. he's poor and he's a dish, dishwasher, and they took the children away, and he did not get all the children from France to America, so some of the children were killed by the Nazis. <sighs> so this is really like, you could think that's the end of the story but then he kind of rises from the ashes and he completely reinvents himself how so so he kind of realizes that the only way that they are going to listen to him to respect him is if he becomes one of them mm. so he he goes back to school so at age 41 and 42 he uh, he gets another degree in social work and then he gets a doctorate in pedagogy in education. And so now, all of a sudden, the same people who were attacking him three years ago or four years ago are really nice to him because now he's one of them. So now they say, well, I mean, we don't believe your ideas, <laughs> but, but he's part of the conversation. And then he does what he always wanted to do in America, and it's he becomes director of another children's home. And like I mentioned before, 
the only children's homes uh, that exist are for these um, kind of lost causes. Uh, so he becomes director of the Wiltwick School for Boys. Okay. And this was a pet project of Eleanor Roosevelt. So she was on the board. And so this is a school for, for boys who had been caught stealing or maybe like playing with fire and they had to be court ordered to the school. So it was like one step before prison was this kind of like institution to correct them. Okay. And what's so interesting here is that he treats the children exactly the same way he treated the refugee children. And so he actually also calls them refugees in their own home. So he says that the Jewish refugee children, they were kicked out by the Nazis. And these children, they were kind of given up on by their parents or by society. Mm. Um, So these are mostly Afro-American children, mostly from the ghettos like Harlem, Mm -hmm. from very poor and very like violent homes. And he treats them the same way. So he he stops corporal punishment. He um, creates this student government. He does therapy with them. So he really follows the, his own um, teachings from the time in France. And again, it works really well. During all his, his time in the United States, um, it seems as if Papana continued to interact with other Austrian-American emigres. Yes. Who were they and, and how, how did uh, they interact? Did they impact each other's work? Sure. Um, so Papanek was very involved in politics his entire life. Um, so even before the war ended, he was uh, involved in this group trying to negotiate post-war relief for Austria. Um, and then when the war ended, he became very involved in a group called Friends of Austrian Labor. So as much as he was connected to Austria, he was especially connected to the Austrian Social Democratic Party. Hmm. Um, So he did a lot of lobbying for them. And he kind of um, became a sort of gatekeeper when they were visiting. Because, of course, this was not the time when you just wrote an email. So it was a big (laughs) deal for like an Austrian politician to come to America and then to have someone there to explain to them. And so he would... he would introduce his former party colleagues uh, to people like Eleanor Roosevelt again or to other important political figures. Okay. And there's a nice uh, description where his apartment, so he then, at the height of his life, uh, his the, the family bought an apartment that was right next to Central Park, like a quite big and quite luxurious apartment. His wife was very successful working in the States. So they had this large apartment and it came to be known as the Vienna away from Vienna or like the little Vienna. Because this is where all the politicians went and where all the emigrants went. So, and these are people that Papanek knew from his youth and who at some point became really important, like Bruno Kreisky, Franz Jonas, Bruno Petermann. So these are the chancellors and the presidents of Austria. Hmm. And they came before they were chancellor and they came to visit Papanek, but also when they were chancellor. And for example, they came to the UN, they would always step by Papanek's apartment and all the old comrades would meet in his apartment. (laughs) So if he was still that tied to Austrian politics and, and 
to Vienna as a home base, why did he stay in the United States? It is really an interesting question. So, I mean, now, I mean, I see we've already talked an hour, but I just gave you some insight into his life. And if you read my book or if you read all the papers and documents I read and really get to know Ernst Papanek, it's really quite surprising why a man who so loves Vienna and so loves the Austrian Social Democrats does not go back. And the answer is that it has a lot to do with anti-Semitism and, or I should specify with the fear of anti-Semitism. And so the truth is that Papanek never asked if he could come back because he was afraid of the answer. So there is a lot of letters where he, where even like 10, 15 years after the end of the war, he will write, I really like it here, but I so miss working with you and what I could do in Vienna. So he kind of, he lets them know, but he never asks the question. And after the war, there was this kind of belief in the Social Democratic Party in Austria that the Nazis became so successful of anti-Semitism uh, because of anti-Semitism and that because so many prominent Social Democrats were Jews, this was why the Nazis had such an easy time against them. And so they were afraid of um, having too many uh, Jews return to Austria and to the, the party. If you look at for example, at Bruno Kreinsky, who then later on became Chancellor of Austria, and he is Jewish, and he, I don't know the exact year, but he came um, back from exile maybe five or ten years after the war ended. Um, so very few people did come back. Um, of course, right in 41, let me rephrase it, right in 45, and no one wanted to come back. I mean, if you are living in rich America and you go back to a work-torn country. Hmm. But in 46, 47, people started to returning, but very few Jewish um, politicians, which is, of course, so sad because Papanek would never have considered himself Jewish. Hmm. And so the official line was that his wife did not want to leave the grandchildren and that once they were grandchildren, it was out of the question. But you can... I, th- I think you can really see how emotional it was for Papanek that it took him 17 years to visit Vienna after the war. And he often went to Europe. He just never went to Vienna. And then 17 years later, um, he does for two days visit Vienna and is welcomed very heartily by the party. The people who are important at this time are more the people he knew from his youth. And so from then, this point on, there is a very warm correspondence and he visits a lot. But I mean, 17 years later, even he was sure he didn't want to go back. He was a professor at the time. Hmm. But he, he did go back in 73. Yes, he did. Um, so we're nearing the end of his life. And so Papanek retires in 70 or 71 um, and actually finally wants to write his memoir but is struggling with a lot of disease and illnesses. And um, he has diabetes and he has kidney problems. And they were actually Mm. a long-term result from from a short time where he was imprisoned and tortured by the Nazis during Mm. his first exile. And then he suffers a stroke in 72. And uh, he has 24-7 care. 
and his wife Lena especially I mean he was such an energetic and optimistic and um, adventurous man and she really struggles with this diminished version of him but she does uh, finally agree to grant him his last wish and so every time he could speak after the stroke he said I want to go home Hmm. and I mean he had lived in New York 33 years but still everyone in his family knew what going home meant and so then actually really finally in uh, the summer of uh, 73 his wife says yes and it might might seem kind of crazy to take a gravely ill man and travel around half the world but it really kind of fits his his whole life and so then they travel to Austria first and their plan is to go to Vienna and to celebrate his birthday but then he really falls ill and they rush him to Vienna to a hospital um, and then he dies shortly before his um, 73rd birthday. But for him, this was like homecoming. And so he really also did want to die in Vienna and he wanted to be buried in Vienna. And so then he has this, it's not a state funeral, but it's like a party funeral. So it's a very mm. nice funeral that he then gets. I wonder, do you know how that was for his uh, wife, Lena? How that must have... Uh been very hard for her for the wife and for the two sons Mm. it was very clear what he wanted okay but his two sisters for years afterwards would not speak to lena and um, they accused her of killing him Um. so they were sure that if he had stayed in new york he would live like a year or two more years and that the trip was what killed him which is probably true but Lena and the sons realized that he did not want to live under 24-7 care anymore. He wanted to be one last time in Vienna. And so they kind of really prioritized his wishes over their, of course, over their um, own feelings. I, I get the feeling that you had a lot of family involvement in, in the research that you did for this biography. Is that true? I mean, a lot, I wouldn't say. So, I, I mean, I did speak to almost every living family member that still lives mm-hmm. and I had of course the the great fortune to do all this research before the pandemic hit so I spent about six weeks in the states and I spoke to his son his oldest son actually Gus who was 92 at the time I spoke to him he's now oh. 94 oh, wow. and he is so interesting because he's not only his son but he also lived in the children's homes because his parents, they did not want the children in the children's home to feel like there are two children who have parents, and then there are all the other children. Oh, fascinating. So their own children lived, lived in the dorms with the refugee children <sighs> and, and saw their parents less than some of the other children. So he could also talk about this time. Hmm. And then I spoke to some of his grandchildren and cousins of Ernst Papanek, so a lot of people from this direction. And I was given access to the private family archive. It's actually not quite easy. You could not write this book now where you cannot travel. Hmm. Because the family, with good intention but bad results, (laughs) separated his papers. Um, so they were actually kept in three different archives on two different continents. 
Um, so his wife, Lena, donated a large part to the New York Public Library. And then about 10 years later, the children donated another part to the Socialist Archive in Amsterdam, mm. where arguably it's a great place for the papers, but now they are separated. And then there's a smaller part in Vienna. And it's really in a way that you have his diaries or his calendars for, let's say, 35 and 36 are in Amsterdam, 37 is in New York, 38 is in Amsterdam, <laughs> oh, no. 39 is in New York. <laughs> so, yeah. So this really makes it hard. And I'm kind of the only one who looked at all the different parts. Because I mentioned before, there is a thesis, but she only worked in Amsterdam. Um, and a lot of the American researchers only work in New York. What would you say is Papanek's legacy? So I would say that on the one hand, it's sad how little he is known, so that his legacy in his writings and his teachings are not as known as they should be. But then where you can really see his legacy is in the children. Mm. And I mean, I've met so many of the children he um he helped either in France or um, later in America. I can also, I think, kind of, it's hard to compare people, but I've done so much research into the kinder transport and into the long-term effects. And I also know a lot of people who were on a kinder transport to England, and you do can see a difference. And this all goes to kind of this question that Papanek was so sure that collective housing is the best way for refugee children and for unaccompanied minors. Because he really believed in this kind of healing atmosphere of being among peers who have gone through the same. And of course, this today is a big discussion when we have child refugees coming to Europe or um, to America or from Mexico. You have this whole discussion, what should we do with these children? And of course, often the first impulse is that a child belongs to a family. Mm. If this family does not speak the language of the child and it does not have the same religious or cultural background, it can be much more traumatic for a single child to be put into this foreign environment than for the same child to be put into a group home where it's among peers um, and where there are educators who understand the background. And so, and I personally could really kind of see this in who of the Holocaust survivors or kinder transport children I know was comfortable discussing their past with their own children and who kind of decided never to talk about it. Hmm. Um, and this is such a different attitude, like someone like Arthur or the other Papanek children. I mean, they have a lot of terrible memories of the war, but they also have so many happy memories. And every time they meet, they talk about friends. I mean, they have they talk about hours and hours of friends, and they're so excited to tell stories. And they're also very close um, still. So they became the kind of the aunts and the uncles for the others' children. So it's really like a family oh. feeling. And this is really where you really see Papa Next Legacy and where it goes forward. And I often describe it in a way that you say, like, these children, they experienced the worst of humanity with all that the Nazis did to them. But they also experienced the best that humanity has to offer when complete strangers did everything to save them. And like Papanek, not only to physically save them, but as he would say, to save their souls. And so this is really kind of the difference and where I would really say is Papanek's legacy lies.
Going back to this idea of these recurring themes in your work and their connections to each other, I would love to um, ask you about Arthur Kern, who seems to have connected all of these pieces. Yeah. So, I mean, if I briefly tell the story of how I met him is that we were both living, we both grew up in the same apartment. Hmm. So he spent his uh, childhood in Vienna in this apartment in the 30s, and I spent my childhood there in the 90s. So it was the same apartment, and it's one of these grand Viennese turn-of-the-century apartments. Um, So it really looked the same also. And I met him when I was 11 years old in the year 2003, so almost 20 years ago, when he came from California to Vienna because he wanted to see his apartment. And so we knew beforehand that he was coming. And for my mother, it was a given to allow him to see this apartment. But I mean, she did worry a bit about this Holocaust survivor coming there and what if it would get really emotional and what if he breaks down and and also what does it mean to us uh, living in an apartment where we know everybody was murdered except mm. Arthur. Ugh. So she really kind of wanted, I don't know, wanted there to be more than just this coffee visit. And so she signed me up for a history project. Um, and this project was called A Letter to the Stars. And this is really the first time that, that in Austria there was a huge school project where students researched the Holocaust. So this was, I mean, all, it always takes longer in Austria than in Germany. So this was only in 2003. And so I researched uh, Arthur's mother. And now skipping a lot of the story, but let's just say through an insane chain of coincidences. Me researching his mother led to the discovery of a package from a long lost package from Arthur's parents. And so really in the shortest way possible, it I was there was a newspaper article where I am holding a picture of Arthur's mother, Frida. Mm-hmm. And then this woman, this like 80-year-old woman, recognized the picture in the paper. And since she was 18 and since the 40s, she had kept a package from the parents. And so, as you can imagine, this incredibly crazy story of Arthur meeting me and then receiving this package from his parents that he hadn't even known existed made a huge impact on him and on me. And that's also why our friendship became much more important than if really he had just come this one time. Um, And I would really say that I became a historian because of, of um, of this meeting. And all that followed it. That is is really beautiful. And um, I imagine that really had a... Were you even writing before then? I mean, I was writing like... I was 11. Uh, but I was like writing short stories and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then also through this project, A Letter to the Stars, I did write a short biography of his mother. And then oh. the year after, in the follow-up project, I wrote about Arthur and his wife, Trudy. And then two or three years later, the project started sending students to England, Israel, and America to meet Austrian Holocaust survivors. And so I, when I was 15, I came to New York with this project. And again, by pure coincidence, I met uh, people who were on a kinder transport. And this time to England. So really, by pure chance, all the first Holocaust survivors I met all were on a kinder transport. And so kind of logically led to my research interest. 
So what is next for you? What are you working on? That's why I'm working on my, my PhD dissertation right now. If I stopped writing books, I would have finished it by now. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so I initially started working about uh, female rescuers of Jews because there is much more women um, who rescue Jews than men. Um, but everybody saw mm. Schindler's List and has a certain set image. Uh, yes. It really is true. I mean, it's such an impact Schindler's List had on Holocaust research. And so there is much more women who rescue Jews. But then through, as it goes, the topic became smaller through while I was researching it. And there's a lot of problems with getting uh, source material for certain countries. So now I'm only looking at France and I'm only looking at Jewish women. So now my dissertation is Jewish women who rescue Jews in France. Wow. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. I am so grateful that you have shared your research and your knowledge with us um, so that for those of us who don't speak German and can't read it, uh, we have learned about Ernst Papenek through you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This podcast was produced by Lily Meyer, Elizabeth Leitzel, and myself. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. I'm Adriana Lacona. Thank you so much for listening. The Botsteber Austrian American Podcast is produced by the Botsteber Institute for Austrian American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botsteberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.